Hey team, it's Matt Drinkon here. And you might have heard, my brand new book releases on Amazon on March 8th. It's been a labor of love that I think can really help you navigate some of the challenges you're experiencing in your own life. I go over toxic positivity and how to think you're in it for everyone else. In reality, you're in it for yourself. And I express that through this entire book and help learn from our own mistakes and how to turn the lens on ourselves and ask good questions. So go to Amazon on March 8th and you can get the Kindle version for only 99 cents. Just search for the book title, The Eternal Optimist. It's never too late. And you can download it directly to your device. That's it for me. Let's get into today's episode. Hello, listeners. This is your host, Matt Drinkon for the Eternal Optimist podcast with another episode here to inspire and provide a you can do it to attitude from someone who has done it. Sometimes we look at people who you might call successful and feel that they must have had it easy. They must have had it handed to them. Maybe they overcame one or two hard things. Well, today's story, my friends, is about someone who's overcome many challenges, many, 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 and the impact has been amazing. Marsha Martin made an impact on me from the very first minute of this discussion. She is energy, wisdom, love, and a teacher, all personified into one person. Some of her accomplishments include being the SVP for Tony Robbins for 10 years and helping to build the core structure of his business. She's also helped to build the Landmark Forum and John Maxwell's coaching structure. She's helped tens of thousands of coaches and hundreds of thousands of people grow and develop. Her impact has been vast and far-reaching. She's worked alongside some of the world's most renowned thought leaders, including Tony Robbins, Jack Canfield, T. Harv Ecker, Lynn Twist, Robert Kiyosaki, Steve Farber, just to name a few. She's helped to produce the hit documentary, The Secret. She studied world religions to be able to speak to people all over the world. We discuss Marsha's perspective on handling challenges by figuring yourself out first how to be centered, how to get open, present, and connected. She shares her brother going to prison and that impact on her. She shares the journey of living in a rainforest and a very intriguing story about a chance meeting with George Clooney and Brad Pitt on the set of Ocean's 13. And finally, she shares a roadmap on how humanity can be great together. Now, without any further ado, I'm gonna bring you into my conversation here with Marsha Martin, and I do hope you enjoy. Hello, and welcome to the Eternal Optimist Podcast, the show for optimists by optimists. This is the show for people who see the good in the world and wanna make a positive difference in the lives of their families and communities. Each week, you'll hear inspiring stories that will get you thinking bigger and playing more offense in life. With your host and high-performance coach, Matt Drinkon. And with that introduction, my guest today, my new friend with an amazing energy, Marsha Martin. Hello, Marsha. How are you today? Matt, thank you so much. And your energy is to be desired by every human being. So thank you for acknowledging mine. But you've got one, too great energy. Awesome. Well, let's take this energy, let's put it together and let's offer some hope and some you can do it to attitude to the world today. I don't think that's going to be a challenge for us. So let's try and challenge each other today and share a great message. And let's dive right into the deep end 
straight away. I know that you like to go deep right away. So let's do it. Let's begin, if we can, with a challenge. If you could take us back in time to a pivotal, transformational, incredibly difficult experience that you had to undergo, what was a challenge that we can start with earlier in your career? Well, it's interesting because my career and my life story is pretty unique. And so I think I actually look at challenges a little more differently than most human beings because I started at such a young age to learn how to deal with challenge. My aunt was a clairvoyant healer and an esoteric astrologist and a shaman. And she, in, I interned with her. And so she taught me from the time I was about 17, 18 years old, how to heal, how to channel, how all energy works. She gave me all the lessons of metaphysics. She had me study all the great philosophers and all the great masters. She had me study all the great religions. And you have to understand, I'm getting this information when I'm a teenager, And she said, and it made sense. I think it makes more sense when you're young than when you're older. So I was glad I got it when I was young. But she said, God never changes. God's always the same. But people have different ways of interpreting God. And people have different ways of seeing God or knowing who God is for them. And so if I really wanted to be an effective human being, and be successful in life, and have great relationships, and make a difference, that I should study the world religions so that I could speak in the same language to whoever I was being with, and just consider God was the same, and whatever way that they were talking about God was God for them. And that just made sense for me. So that's my foundation. And then, as you know, I met Werner Erhard when I was in my very early 20s, who was the founder of EST, which became Landmark Forum. And I was one of the first five people that he had on his team, where we created Erhard Seminars Training, then Landmark Forum. There were 20 of us. I took the very first seminar workshop that he ever led. And there were 20 of us in that workshop. And then I enrolled everybody I could because it was so fabulous and wonderful. And it was everything I had learned from my aunt in terms of being responsible and making a difference and making the world a better place and knowing who you are and being able to create your own future instead of being at the effect of your circumstances that I just went out and told the world, you have to do this. And I brought so many people in that essentially then Werner made me the senior vice president in charge of communication and registration. And over a 10-year period of being an executive there, we went from those 20 people to millions of graduates worldwide. And I went from having one person that worked for me to having 5,000. So that particular history of who I am gives me a perspective in terms of how do you handle challenges And so challenges for me have never been things that are so big and then I figured it out. I think I figured it out first and then the challenges came. I did it in the opposite way that most people do. Most people go through life having breakdowns and then getting some kind of insight about themselves. I got all the insights about myself first And then I started having breakdowns because I've been through everything that anybody else has been through. You know, I've been divorced. I've lost money. I've had 
dear people pass away. I've had betrayals. I've lost businesses. So, but how I handle them is that I consider the things in front of me a gift and that it's a, it's a process of flowing with the universe. It's not something I need to resist and it's not something bad. It just is what's in front of me that perhaps I could learn from. So, you know, I could tell you about the time I lost all my money or about the time my best friend betrayed me, but they're all the same. And how I handle those challenges is to recognize that there's something in it. If I'm creating it, if it's in front of me, if the universe has sent it to me, then there must be something I need from it to learn, to grow, to be able to contribute more, to be a more effective human being. And so I approach it that way. Now, it's not like I don't feel bad during the time, but I'm very aware during the time that this is something that I'm big enough to handle, that I will get through. And so I just hold on, kind of like surfing. You know, if the waves are big, you better hold on. You can't figure out why or what if or, you know, you can't be out of present time. You got to be here now and deal with whatever's in front of you and keep moving forward and trust yourself. So I don't know if that answers your question, but it kind of gives you a context of how I think, at least. I appreciate the way you think. I feel that I've already learned in the last four minutes of our discussion, and I appreciate that. And I I do want to dig in for the person who is approaching it what you might call the the reverse way they they are facing what they would call a challenge and they've maybe not done the foundational work uh that you have described on on have insight about themselves yeah so two things really come up for me i'd love to ask you about one you talked about you could you could share a story about how when you lost all your money or when you had a friend betray you and those are very relatable things that i'm sure many of us i mean i've lost all my money at one point and i've been betrayed before i think a lot of us have right so in that moment of losing all your money what did that feel like and how did you deal with that particular challenge at that time in life okay very good so how i deal with any challenge and especially those kinds that kind of rock you is i know that the first thing is somehow get myself back to being centered because I know how the mind works. So I'll give you a little course real quick. So everybody kind of thinks that when something happens in front of you, like somebody betrays you or you lose your money or, you know, you don't get the office that you wanted or whatever it is, that that event in front of you is the thing that's making you feel the way you feel. But I know how it works. And if you study any kind of psychology, philosophy, metaphysics, inner energy, somatics, linguistics, I mean, just how the brain works, et cetera, et cetera. They all tell you the same thing, which is you as a human being make all the decisions you need to make about how you're going to handle something in the first 10 years of your life. So the mind is a survival mechanism that human beings have that holds old events in the memory in case they need to get that information again, in case anything 
new happens that is kind of like that old thing so that the mind can tell you, well, here's what you need to do because this is what you did last time. So, for example, let's say that you're young and you feel abandoned. Your dad and mom get divorced or, you know, somebody steals your bicycle and you feel great loss. Or I know when I was little, what happened was I fell out of the car when my mom and dad were driving down the street and they didn't notice that I was gone. Oh, whoa. And so what happened was I actually saw my father in the front seat. I guess his door was not totally closed. So he opened it up and then he slammed it shut, pulled it shut. And I was in the back seat, and I must have been about four or five, I guess. And I thought that looked really fun to do. So I opened up my car door, but the wind from the door, and because I was so little, just pulled me out of the car. And the car kept going because they didn't notice I was gone. And so I was panicked that somebody's leaving me. Well, we all have those kinds of incidents in our life. So how the mind works is it keeps that incident for you kind of like in a library and how it works is anything that happens to you in the future that looks like that sounds like that smells like that whatever the mind considers is it and so it puts you on automatic like a default like a program and it clicks you into that to act out whatever you did then because it assumes if you're still around you did the right thing because you survived so if we want to survive this time We better do the same thing. So we find ourselves as human beings operating kind of like we're doing things and saying things and feeling things. We don't know why. It just feels like we're programmed. We're in an old traumatic incident that the mind thinks that we have to be in because the thing in front of us looks a little bit like it. And so what a successful human being can do, and you have to discipline yourself and learn to do this, is realize that you need to get back to center instead of being triggered and off center and thrown off into your emotions and your feelings and all of these things that are really from something in the past. They're not about the thing in the front of you. The thing in front of you is just happening. You have a choice to respond in any way you want. Why would you respond with anger if it's not working or fear or upset because it's not making you anything. It's just happening. But see, I know that. So I know, okay, now I got triggered. I'm off center. I better get back to center first. And that's the first thing. Center first before you act. If I can take a deep breath, if I can calm down, if I can not talk yet, if I can not push the send button yet, if I cannot, you know, don't act when you're off center, pull yourself back into present time, get open, present, and connected, which is what centered is, being open, present, and connected. And then you have the capacity to choose a response. And usually when you're in that space, the the response you choose is more effective. And it allows you to handle the situation rather than get thrown into the, you know, cyclone of the situation. 
So that's what I do my best to do. Center first, then act. If I get myself centered, then I can say, okay, how am I going to choose to respond to this? Instead of lying to myself and saying, you made me angry. No, you did whatever you did. And I got triggered. Maybe I'm in my anger that's triggered. But you didn't make me angry. You just looked like the thing that felt like the thing, whatever, that in the past happened to me when I was little and it was traumatic. And I was, you know, and all of those kinds of things happen before you're 10. And that's what's so funny. I always say life is a joke, but you just have to be able to stand back far enough to see the punchline. Because when you're in the middle of it, it doesn't seem so funny. You know, it's pretty serious. But the truth of it is, is, you know, we just go around getting triggered by all of the stuff and having our mind run us rather than driving the boat ourselves. Here's another thing that I would say to people is that, you know, even if you operate as if you always have a choice, just think about that. I'm going to operate in life as if I always have a choice, even if the only choice I have is how will I respond to whatever's happened to me? It's my choice how I respond. I have a brother and he's in prison right now. And he's been in prison before and we keep trying to, you know, get him to a place where he doesn't break his probation and go back to prison. But for the first time, he's actually, he's growing and evolving. I'm so excited because all of the other times he's been in prison, his choices have been to blame people, be upset, be angry, you know, not learn from it. Those are his choices. He thinks that prison makes him angry. But think about this. He doesn't have a choice of whether he's in prison, but he does have a choice of how he's going to experience being in prison. Just like Nelson Mandela was in prison for 27 years. Holy God, right? 27 years. And somehow he chose to respond to that situation in a way that he changed the world. He didn't just become a better man or a better father or a better whatever. You know, he made us all better. He changed the world. So we all have a choice. Even if the only choice we have is how are we going to respond in this moment to this event? The event's just happening. You're like in a boat. You're going down the river. The river is the way it is. And that's how I consider life. And that's why I think I handle my challenges different. I still feel bad. I get upset. I have feelings. I cry. I'm sad. I feel lonely. All of those things. But I know I'm in the boat going down the river and I'm off center. So I better, you know, get back up. I I hit some rapids. I hit, you know, no wind. You know, the river is stop trying to change the river and change yourself. And here's one last thing I would say about this question that you asked me. Because people haven't been trained like I've been trained. You know, I had an amazing opportunity to have mentors like Buckminster Fuller. I sat at Buckminster Fuller's knee. You know, I traveled with him all around the United States, introducing him to events. Werner Earhart, Warren Bennis, Peter Drucker, Jerry Weintraub, John Denver. I mean, I've had people that have taught me. And it's just been amazing from the time I'm very young. So usually we get taught by our journey. You know, life has its lessons. 
but I kind of went to school to learn how the journey was going to happen before the journey happened so that I had some extra kinds of things to bring to help me along the journey itself. And one of the things that I would say for people to realize is that the ability to be aligned. So lots of things that you can learn in life, lots and lots and lots of things that personal development kinds of teachers will teach you. But I'm telling you, this one is the big one. If you only have this one, just know this. Alignment trumps everything. So what are you aligned to? How I look at life is that everything is connected. Things flow through me. So I come into the world from divinity, not coming into the world searching for divinity. I'm connected first to my higher power. I'm connected first to whatever a person calls light or the universe or God or whatever. That's something that flows through me because that is the source of everything and is connected to everything. It's like, kind of like you have fingers. You know, if you look at your fingers, Matt, in fact, one of the Ashwar tribal chiefs when I was living in the rainforest with them taught me this. He said, you people from the north. And what he meant was you civilized people out there who call yourself civilized. <laughs> You think of yourself as a finger on a hand, that you're individual, that you're disconnected, that you're separate. And it's all about what you need and what you think and who you are. Think about that, right? He says, you forget that the fingers are attached to a hand. And what he was saying is, there's a community, there's a tribe, there's a family, there's a people, there's something bigger than just you as an individual. And he says, and you really forget that that hand is connected to a whole ecosystem. He kind of used the body as an example, but that we're connected to everything. and We are one with the water and the waterfalls and the sky and the animals and other human beings and the leaves and the rocks and the trees and we're all connected. So it's kind of like the ocean, you know, when the ocean is all together, it's one big mass, and then it crashes up against a rock, and some foam goes up in the air, and you can see it individually. And that's like the fingers, you know, it's, it's an expression of a bigger thing. And human beings, for me, are an expression of a bigger source. And we're each that expression, but we're all connected. Our connection we find from inside, not outside of ourselves. It's we go within to get connected. And that's what I mean by alignment trumps everything, is if I can stay connected and flow from that energy and come from that place and know who I am and be in touch with my higher self and my bigger self and not get disconnected from that or unaligned, Everything will work out fine. So I would just say, you know, go back to who you really are. Close your eyes. Go within. Find the peace within you to be able to express yourself from. And then you'll be in present time. And then you can make choices that really work. Wow. From that answer, so much opportunity. I'm definitely going back to listen to that again. And I have at least five questions that came from that. I don't know where to start, but I'll start with this. You mentioned that your brother who's been in and out of prison right now, something's different. 
he's he's some something has shifted and maybe he's learning or maybe something has evolved. Can you comment on the difference between him now versus before? Well, you have to understand I'm his big sister. So it's not like the first time I've ever sat him down and said how life is and how he should think and what he should do and all of that, right? He's listened to me over many, many years, but it hasn't taken. And I think this last time, something happened for him where he heard me. So we write back and forth. They let you have a tablet in prison and you can email back and forth if you're on the list. And I'm going to take these emails. I swear to God, I, it's so inspiring and so funny. He's got such a good sense of humor. And the things that happen there, you can't even believe what happens in that community. Like between your bunkmate, between the guys that are in prison, you know, how you get lunch, how you do this, how you do that, what the guards are like, the kinds of thoughts you have, what you're thinking, what you're doing, what you want, what you know, what you regret, what you wish for, all of those things. Well, he has been kind enough to share because I said to him, I said, I want you to start writing about your life. And I think maybe this is when it started happening is he started telling me about things that happened when he was a child and what he was sad about. And, and then he started telling me what happened in the prison. I want to take these letters, these emails that I have back and forth, and I'm going to put it in a book because everyone, it's so inspiring. It makes me laugh. I've sent some of the letters to my friends and they sob. They're so touching. And it's like, you know, he's in a place where he's starting to realize how precious life is and how little he did with his life. But what I tell him is it's okay because this is what he needed to go through in order to have this realization. And the realization he's having now and the understanding he's having about life, most people don't even get to this place. I don't care how much money they have or how many boats or how many houses or how many wives or husbands or you know, how many titles, a lot of people never get to that place where they know who they are, where they know what life is really about. And he's there. He really is. He's making a difference. He says, I never knew that, you know, I could have friends. And he said, I thought for sure I couldn't have friends in here because it's scary having friends in prison because you don't want to go too far. Everybody's in their own gangs and everybody has their own leader. You know, it's a very unsafe place. And so you don't want to open up and you don't want to make friends. And you don't know how long they're going to be there anyway, because anytime someone comes in and says, OK, we're taking you to another place. He's starting to see that he's making a difference. He's making a difference. And it's just been the best thing for him. It's so beautiful. Oh, my God. That's amazing. Thank you for sharing that story, number one. Number two, when the, when you're ready to get that book out, uh, put me on the list. I would love to love to hear that. Maybe I'd love to have you on the show again and talk about it. I love just the thought of learning of someone who's gone to that point in their life and then something happens, an awakening or uh, a revelation of some kind, and then they share this amazing story, which impacts the world in an amazing way. I'd love to love to hear that and trumpet that. To get to the kind of the, the genesis of it, his transformation, I think you shared that he started to figure something out, something happened when he started to write it out and really 
think through childhood and his experiences. Writing and reading also. I started sending him books, certain books. Like, you know, there, for me, there's a few foundational books that every human being should read. One is my friend Don Miguel Ruiz wrote The Four Agreements. It's a fabulous book. It's simple. It's profound. It, it says so much. In, it's easy to read. It's easy to understand, but it's very deep. That's always one I have my students or my people I coach read. And then Untethered Soul by Michael Singer. Everybody needs to have that as, you know, their own little book. And I read that every six months or so. It's so good. There's a couple of books in the Unfuck Yourself series that's Ah, Bishop. (laughs) So so I started sending him these books that were easy enough to read and understand. And at first he got sad. So then I started telling him how things worked in my letters. I would say, well, you're sad because you have sadness within and because you haven't dealt with it. And so something outside is happening that triggers you because it looks like that old sadness time And so then it comes up. So don't, you know, he was always wondering, why do I cry at all the movies? And why do I, I shouldn't be able to cry. And it's not good to cry in prison anyway. (laughs) You know, he says, what do I do? So a lot of that, it's been like, he's in this like training. And I'm thrilled because I told him, I said, good thing you're in prison because finally you're listening. You have nothing else to do. So you got so bored and you could have nothing. I like, you have to stay there. So great. I'm going to write. You're going to read. You're going to write. And we're going to see where we go. And he's starting to get it. It's so inspiring. Oh, fantastic. I want to keep going deeper and deeper, but I want to do a quick pause for something lighter and this may not even be lighter, but you made a comment that you lived in the rainforest for some time. And out of, out of left field, my brain is just ADD going crazy right now thinking, wow, what is that like to live in a rainforest? Can you give us a couple of glimpses of living in a rainforest? Well, I went on a trip, which everybody can do if they go to the Pachamama Alliance. My great friend, Lynn Twist, is one of the co-founders of the Pachamama Alliance. And she had a, many years ago in the mid-80s, that pretty much was a calling. And the dream that she had, she was working in Ending Hunger. We all started to work towards Ending Hunger when we were in S together. And she was really good at raising money. And so there was a person that had an organization that was concerned about the rainforest and they asked her to come on this trip to teach the people that were on the trip how to fundraise, you know, to teach the team that were bringing all these very rich people on this trip how to get them to donate more money. And she said, no, I'm too committed to raising hunger. So he said, okay, I'll donate $200,000 to the Hunger Project if you'll come on this trip. She says, I'm there. So she went on this trip and ended up being in a drum circle. And in a drum circle, there's a shaman. You put your feet towards the fire and you lay down and you kind of go into a meditation and he starts doing the drums and pretty soon you have visions and it's kind of a trance state. And then you wake up and you share what your vision was. And when she told the shaman what her dream was, he looked at her really funny and he said, I want you to stay after because your dream is different than the other dreams. And he said, your dream is somebody's calling you. 
you have to go. You, you have to find out who's calling you and you have to go. She saw in her dream these faces floating on top of the rainforest, calling to her in this language that she didn't understand. And they had all of these kinds of paintings on their face, and they had certain kinds of colors of tribal headdresses and feather headdresses in their, on their heads. And so she came back to the United States, and she kept having these visions And one time she was even on the freeway and suddenly she's driving her car and this thing comes up in front of her like you see a vision in front of you, right? And she almost gets in an accident and it's kind of scary to her. Well, her friend, who is also one of the founders of the Pachamama Alliance, John Perkins. John Perkins, if you read Confessions of a Economic Hitman. So John's one of my good friends, too. You read that book. That's a great book. So he went through a lot to get to the place where he got to, which was he had a spiritual awakening, which was part of the reason that she was in the place anyway that she was in with this drummer and the shaman. He's off and he realizes that it's the Ashwar that are calling her because he works with a group of Indians in the rainforest that are the Oshawar's neighbor. And the Oshawar are the tribe way back when conquistadors came and got the gold. And, and this one tribe said, oh, you want the gold? Great, here, here's the gold. And they poured it down their throats and they kept one person alive to send back to tell everybody, this is what they did. So they never got ever you know, trampled on again for like 400 years. There was no white man there, right? Well, the Ashwar at this time saw a dream. They're a dream tribe. So they decide what to do based on their dreams. And the dream that they had was they were supposed to reach out and contact the civilized world, which nobody had ever done like that before by, you know, the rainforest tribes because there was something happening that needed to be handled. And what was happening was the rainforests were dying because the oil companies were coming in and tearing down the rainforests. And so they sent out their dreams. Well, Lynn caught one, I guess, because she had this dream that essentially then John realized it's the Oshawar calling and we have to go see the Oshawar. And Lynn is going, Ashwar, I'm, it, I'm sure it's not for me because I know nothing about any of that stuff. But now she's having these dreams that are not even when she's asleep, they're when she's awake, right? So they go on a canoe, about 12 or 13 or 14 of them in the mid-80s to see if there's anybody out there that's calling them and they go to the Ashwar. And this particular trip, that she does now even takes you to the Oshawar tribe. And that's where I went. You t- took a plane into Quito in Ecuador. And then you took a real scary ride. Oh my God. On a bus kind of, but there's cliffs that go down to the floor of the rainforest and these big buses and there's short little roads. There's no railing. There's, it's like, you're just like, ah, you, you keep scooting over in your chair as if you could make the bus go a little over on the road, but it's scary. And you go all the way down and then you had to get on a single engine plane 
and fly for a few hours over the rainforest and land on this little square of sand that they had cleared from the rainforest and you landed. Then you had to walk to wherever the first tribe was and sleep on a banana leaf because there's no lights or anything. And, you know, you're in the middle of the rainforest and now they're cooking for you and they're cooking larvae. They don't tell you that. You don't ask because you don't, you know, you just want to know what you're doing. Then you have to get in a canoe and go down the Amazon. And then you have to go into the rainforest. And we were on a seven-hour trek. Now, they've made it since then. You don't have to go on the seven-hour trek because this seven-hour trek was not like a nice walk in the forest. This is like a marine boot camp, man. Seven hours sweat and, you know, have to go fast and have to get there to we're going to this tribe. You had to walk across big logs that were across where the cliffs were. And way down below was a raging river. And you're crawling across on your hands and knees and you're terrified. You're not scared. You're terrified. And then there were other times where, you know, you had to walk real close and Otherwise, if you stepped on the side, your leg would go down in the mud to your hip. It's like, what? My leg just got swallowed by the earth. I mean, like that for seven hours, right? And this one time, and it's all done in language because you have these guides. There's the Oshawar. Then there's the Spanish guides because the Spanish guides know Oshawar. And then there's the English guides because they know Spanish. <laughs> so it goes. you can see it go up and down. You know, like somebody says something and asks a question, like we all stopped. Okay, we're in the middle of rainforest and all of a sudden everybody stops. Everybody goes, what's going on? Why are we stopped? <laughs> Where are we? And you could see the Spanish, the English guy says something in Spanish to the Spanish guy that says something in Oshawa to the Oshawa guy. And then the Oshawa guy says something back in Spanish to the Spanish back, blah, blah, blah. And then it came down <laughs> somebody said... Oh, we're stopped because there's something in the road. There's something in the trail, and they have to clear it. Well, now, we looked at each other, and we went, we're on a trail? Did you see a trail? I did not see the trail. Like, where is it? And there's a guy with a machete out there, like, going like this, chomping off stuff, clearing the trail which you could not tell you were on a trail anyway. But anyway, then we were start up again, right? So I stayed there. We were there for a couple of weeks living with the tribe. And that's when we did ayahuasca. And they taught us about, you know, like, like fingers and hands and bodies. And we're all connected. And it was just an amazing, enlightening trip of a lifetime. But here's the great thing that you should know about the Pachamama Alliance is what the Oshawar told Lynn and the group that she brought and John when they got there was, <laughs> they said, you people from the north, <laughs> you particular, because you came, we called, you came, right? So you must be the ones. So here's your job. You have to go back to where you came from <laughs> And tell them that we need a different dream because the dream they have is unsustainable and they are ruining the earth and the planet and this is not good and it's not going to turn out well. So this is the time where you have to change the dream. And so that's what she's been working on since 1980. And that's what the Pachamama does is it, it brings communication and teaches about how we shepherd our earth and our planet because we're all connected right 
Absolutely. And now, a quick identification break from our sponsor for the Eternal Optimist podcast. Today's sponsor is Playing the Infinite Game. Have you paused to ask yourself where you'd like to go and the path to get there? MarshaMartinClub.com is Marsha's full library of curated wisdom from a life of exceptional experience and impact. There are hundreds of hours of videos on relationships, sales, life wisdom, how to enroll people, workshops on growth and development, the list goes on. Basically, this can be your opportunity to level up in any area you desire. Marsha did not ask me to promote this. I'm simply doing it because I'm a huge admirer of Marsha's, and I want the world to know about her. MarshaMartinClub.com. For the price of a couple of cups of coffee a month, you can have access to the wisdom that has helped serve thousands and hundreds of thousands of coaches and of people worldwide. Check it out today. Now, back to the conversation. And I, I, I guess when I asked for something lighter, what? I didn't know what I was going to get. That was amazing. <laughs> wow. What an incredible story. And you just named Lynn Twist, John Perkins. And I mean, these are people, and, and Don Miguel, I mean, these, and Michael Singer, these are all people I've read all these books. And it's such a fascinating accounting of what seemed like a simple question. And you just really, really blossomed and made it beautiful. And just thank you for that detailed story. That was amazing. A really fun light story if you want something really fun. Oh, my goodness. Buckle up. Let's do it. Okay. So this is one of my favorite stories. So Jerry Weintraub is one of the greatest producers of all time. He's passed away now. And I've known him since I was 22 because he was an early EST graduate. And also he was John Denver's manager, which is how I met John. Actually, I met John through my boyfriend, but that's another story. But John was managed by Jerry. Jerry, when he was a manager, helped manage Frank Sinatra and, and Elvis Presley and all sorts of great entertainers. And he was John Denver's manager before he became a great Hollywood producer. And he produced movies like Oceans, all the Oceans movies, right? And he, and he produced Karate Kid and he produced Traffic. John Denver used to call my boyfriend, Tony, and say he was in Reno or whatever, and that he was singing, and would Tony and I like to come up and join him, and he has a suite for us, and it would be fun, and we could all gamble together. And Annie, his wife at the time, you've heard of Annie's song, Fill Up My Senses. Well, Annie was my maid of honor at my wedding. So this is back in the 70s. And John would call us and we would go and we would gamble. And, you know, there'd be hundreds of people around us looking at us as we're gambling. We'd have fun. And Jerry was always there, always, because he was wherever John was. So I knew Jerry from the time I'm a youngster. Anyway, around 2004, so many years later, I'm sitting in my office in Aspen and I get this phone call. And what's funny, earlier in the day, I got a phone call from Jack Canfield. Jack said, you need to help me. I want to create the Transformational Leadership Council. And so that morning, I had promised Jack that I'd help him create the Transformational Leadership Council. And then that afternoon, I get this other call. And this woman says, Marsha Martin, please. And I go, yeah, this is Marsha. <laughs> she says, please hold. I have Jerry Weintraub and Steven Soderbergh on the line for you. And I go, wow. <laughs> like, <Okay. laughs> 
So I haven't heard from Jerry in all these years, and I certainly didn't know Stephen. You know, it's like, okay, like, well, holy hell. So Jerry gets on the phone, and he was so funny, and he had this big voice, and he was just really, like, the greatest character. He says, sweetheart, sweetheart, I need you. I need you right now. I've got a project. I can't do it without you. I'm sending a plane. I'm sending a limo. I have a hotel room. You know, you got to get your ass out of here to L.A. So the next thing I know, I'm on my way to Los Angeles to Warner Brothers to meet with Jerry and Steven. And we're doing this project. And Paul Atanasio is involved. And he's the screenwriter for Johnny Brasco. And I'm sitting, you know, and so for like two years, about every two to three months for two or three hours, I would be meeting me, Stephen, Jerry, and Paul Atanasio, right, on this project that Jerry had that he had to do. And I was the only one that had the information. He put me under contract to Warner Brothers (laughs) as the consultant. Now, the project never happened, but I learned so much. So one day, he's making Ocean's 13. And Ocean's 13, I don't know if you know this or not, but that movie, when you watch it, there's only one scene in the whole movie that's live. It's the last scene at the Bellagio Fountain. The very last scene, they actually went there and they did the scene in front of the actual fountain. Every other scene in that whole entire movie is a set. And it's on the back studio's lots of Warner Brothers, the... The tunnel, the apartment, the the casino, everything was a set. And so one day, Jerry says, let's show Marsha the sets. (laughs) And I'm like, okay. So we get in his Mercedes-Benz golf cart, and we go back in the lot. You know, I see all these sets. I go into the casino set. I go into the the tunnel. I go into... the apartment that it's like total real. Right. And then he says, let's go to the club. So I think it's another set for the movie. Right. I go, okay. So Jerry takes me to the club. So we go into this big barn. You know how the big barns are in the back lot of Warner brothers. You you've seen those, right. All the sets are in there. So you go through the front doors and then you have all these dark hallways that lead you into different doors that have different sets. Right. So there's, there's all sorts of stuff in the hallways from different costumes, from different, you know, things that they use in the sets. It's like you can barely move your way through it. So he gets to the store, he opens the door, we go in. Oh my God, we're like in a restaurant, like a really cool restaurant. And it has up there, it says the boys club in neon lights and has all these pictures of all these amazing entertainers, Clark Gable and everybody, and they've all been signed and there's a poker table and there's booths and there's tables, and there's sofas, and there's a bar, like you've never seen a bar before, ever, ever, and has a bartender behind it, and there's a waitress, and it's totally empty, except it's this gorgeous club kind of thing, right? So Jerry takes me in, we, he says, come on, Marsh, we'll go sit at my table. And I was just being a smartass, because, you know, I'm looking around, <laughs> there is no one. Not one person except for the waitress and the bartender in the whole place. And so I say, I'm glad you have a table. So we got some room, right? (laughs) 
us and we sit down at his table and we're sitting there, we're going through the Paris match magazine that just came out that month. And there's a picture of his Palm desert house in it. He wants to show it to me. Right. So he says, I want to show you the magazine. And suddenly out from somewhere, somebody runs out with the magazine. And then he says, we should get something to drink. And then suddenly the waitress is there and we're like eating and drinking and the, the bartender's there and we can have any, and we're just sitting there. And then, oh my God, I couldn't believe it. So the door opens and in comes George Clooney. What? That's what I <laughs> I'm sitting there and I'm trying to be so cool because you cannot be a tourist at this point. Like you're on the inside. You can't be uncool. So I'm sitting there, and then Jerry, because I've known him for so many years, and I'm working with him all this time, he turns around and he goes, George, George, come on over. I want you to meet Marsha Martin. And I'm thinking, oh, yeah, you want to meet Marsha Martin? Come on over, babe. You know, it's like, I can't believe this is happening. George comes around, sits down beside me, gives me a kiss on my cheek and a hug. So glad to meet me. Now I'm sitting across from Jerry next to George. And a few more minutes go by, and the door opens again, and it's Brad Pitt. What? What? So, because they're making Motions 13, right? So Brad Pitt comes in, and Jerry again says, Brad, come on over. I want you to meet Marsha Martin. Like, I'm suddenly becoming somebody. You know, like, I'm really, I was like, this is good. Okay, fine. I can do this. I can be okay about this. I'm cool. I'm not going to faint or anything. So Brad comes in, and now he's giving me a kiss on the cheek and a hug. And he's sitting down on my left side. So now I'm sitting between Brad Pitt and George Clooney. Very cool, right? All I want to do is take the camera, but you can't do that, right? So then Steven Soderbergh comes in, who I know, because I've been working with him for the last couple of years, right? But he has Danny Boyle with him. And Danny Boyle was the president of the Directors Guild at that time, and he had just finished making Slumdog Millionaire. He's a very, very big-time director. And so I think this is just, this is crazy, right? So now... Stephen turns to Danny and he says, Danny, he looks over and he goes, Marsh, I didn't know you were in town. And he turns to Danny and says, Danny, come on over. I want you to meet Marsha Martin. So I'm like, whoa, okay, this is good. <laughs> so I hung up for a couple hours with the boys and it turns out this was a club that Warner Brothers built just for them while they had the movie. It wasn't for anything except them. And it was amazing. And we had so much fun. And I mean, there's fun stories. So that's something light for you. Yeah? Yeah. Wow. Yeah. <laughs> Super cool. What a unique, wow. What a treasure trove of amazing stories. Thank you for sharing that story, Marsha. And, and whew, man, I would love to keep building, hear more stories. And I would love to share with our listeners more about Marsh Martin, how we might connect with you, find out more about you. Where can we go to find out more about Marsh Martin? Well, my website is marshamartin.com and it's spelled M-A-R-C-I-A-M-A-R-T-I-N. And you can find out about my courses and about my coaching. And then I also have another uh, place you can go called Marsha Martin Club. Dot com, And I actually had this great idea. 
and I'm just now really kind of putting it all together, but it's there and you can, you can participate. It's $10 a month. And I've been uploading all my workshops and seminars and podcasts because I thought, well, I know what happens when people are in the room with me. I know how their lives transform and I do workshops on leadership and communication and sales and relationships and all sorts of things. And they're great workshops, but I thought, well, maybe I'll work online. Who knows? So I kind of created this Marsha Martin Netflix, you know, Marsha Martin on demand. You just pay $10 a month and you can go in and watch whatever workshop you want. And it is going to be even better because I'm going to organize it so you can tell what's there. And, you know, if you have a certain question, you want to know what to watch. But literally, really, if you just go in and watch anything, just watch and start watching a half an hour a week. Doesn't matter. Your life's going to change because that's what people tell me. I get emails. They say, you just saved my marriage. Oh my God. I just had, you know, a hundred percent increase in sales. Oh, I just gave my first public speaking and I was really good based on what you taught me in the workshop. So that's another place that people can find out about me or have some fun or get some training. I had some fun in there earlier. I was I was just kind of nosing around, seeing everything that I could see, and I kind of got got lost in, in this expansive world of all the things that you have to offer in there. And I'll give you an example of the things that were really connecting with me from our discussion now to your library. You talked earlier about you know how you handle all these challenges. Is that when the universe sends things to to you, then really it's something that you must learn, that the universe is there to teach you something. And you just named three specific examples of what someone, if they're seeking to grow in public speaking or to grow their company or to find insight and serve them in their marriage, all of these things can be tied into the marshmartinclub.com. And I saw that you've got several, what would look like, a, it's not YouTube, but it was videos yeah. that are ready to hit play that, that have titles that were very appealing to me. So I, I found it quite insightful. I'm, I'm ready to sign up Right now, this is not a sales pitch, everyone. Genuinely, this is this is cool stuff. I'm going to go in there and sign up and, and share some feedback on it. So thank you for sharing that. Is there a place you might navigate us to first? Yeah, I would say, let's see, go to the workshops. Anything that has to do with enrollment or sales are great. And there's a couple relationship workshops that I did that I think you'll really enjoy. They're fun and funny. I'm quite a comedian on stage. Even I, even I think I'm funny. But I talk about men and women and how men can get to understand women and how women can better empower men. And it's hysterical, but it's changed a lot of relationships. Marsha, I don't know how this has happened, but I looked down the clock and our time that we scheduled is about up. I don't know how that happened. You're so easy to listen to. It's such a pleasure and a joy to have you on the show. So I just, I want to thank you. And I feel like we're cutting it kind of short. Is there anything else that you'd like to share a story or, or anything before we wrap things up? No, the only thing I would close with is to have people know that this is a very special time in history. And all of the sages and all of the great masters have been talking about this time for a long, long time. And even the people in the rainforest have been talking. And it's the time where there's a choice point for humanity to grow and be sustainable and be evolved and wake up. Or a time when maybe we just 
don't do enough and it all goes away. And how the Ashwar and the indigenous tribes talk about it is the prophecy of the eagle and the condor. And they say that for years, most people live as if the eagle and the condor are separate. And the eagle is the mind or the ego or science or capitalism or money or the head. It's where you're really in your head thinking. And the condor is nature and love and the heart. And they say that in order for humanity to really be sustainable, and for the earth to live and grow the way that it should, the eagle and the condor must come together, wingtip to wingtip, to fly across the rainforest. And what that means is that we have to have both our head and our thinking and science and all of the logic, plus our heart and nature together. And I think that if people understand, this is that time where it's all very polarized, And, you know, there's something coming where it will emerge and to trust that it's going to be fine. And the best way to find out your answers for any of the problems you have is to go within. Mm. Thank you. Thank you so much for being with us today, Marcia. You are greatly appreciated. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the Eternal Optimist podcast. You can check the show notes for information about today's episode. And please share the show with that friend who is wanting to think bigger. We'll see you next time.